So let's go to Luke 13 together, uh, verse 22. So Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first. And some are first who will be last. And at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as hens gather their, her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, you for, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, it's our desire this morning to know you more. It's our desire this morning to know the heart of your Father. And we pray that through the proclamation of your word today, that you would reveal yourself in a new way, in a new light. Um, we can never, ever fully comprehend all that you are. And every time we open the beautiful words of this Bible, it's an opportunity for us to know your heart. And we just pray that, that your will would be done today. We want to know you more today, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's start to kind of dive in here and look at this, this passage and what Jesus is doing here. So we, we begin in verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, right, with every passing verse, we're getting closer and closer to the cross. And Jesus has his eyes fixed on Jerusalem. And with every verse we read, we're getting closer and closer to Jesus' ultimate goal of his redemptive ministry, right? Jesus is, uh, is on this redemptive ministry journey. And as we unpack the word today, unpack this passage, we're going to see that 
Nothing is going to stand in the way of Jesus getting to the cross. And nothing is going to stand in the way of Jesus to getting to the day of resurrection. And that is his ultimate goal, right? Is to get to that cross so that he can do what he came to do. And that is pay for our sins so that we might know life. Amen? So we're going to see Jesus, and he's, throughout these next few chapters, is constantly striving to get back to Jerusalem. And he has limited time to get there to accomplish his purpose. And so he's with his followers, right? He's got his disciples and who knows however many hundred of people that are walking with him on his journey. And someone said to him, we don't know if this was a disciple or, or someone else, but on verse 23, someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? This is a question that I know many of us have struggled with, right? With salvation and who will be saved and how many will be saved. And I, I you know, struggled with this a lot, um, especially when I was younger. So I grew up, uh, my, my parents were missionaries. My father was a pastor. He was a worship pastor uh, at our church in South Texas, right on the border. And my, my parents were the founders of our church, the co-founders of our church. We built the church up from a small little home church of 12 people to a church of about 200 people. And we were traveling all over Mexico and doing amazing work in Mexico and building up churches. And at one point, we had about 30 churches in Mexico that we were ministering to and taking care of. And my father and my mother were, were the ones that were leading a lot of this ministry. And when I was nine, my father left us for an affair and left the church and left our family just out of nowhere, overnight. And it was devastating. It was absolutely devastating to our family, devastating to our church to see the leader of our church really and and fall to this temptation and and it was just brutal, absolutely brutal. And so my father left us when I was nine. The hope of a nine-year-old boy is, you know, pretty interesting, right? I mean, I still at nine, kind of understanding everything that was going on, I still had this hope for my father that somehow he would come back, somehow he would change, somehow he would be convicted. And so many people in our church, it was really beautiful to see the people of our church um, really still love him and want him to come back, even though they were hurt, even though he left, even though all this happened. There was always this open door of, we want you back. And in my family, in my home, and in our church, when I was 11, two years later, uh, we lost him in a car accident. That was, you know, kind of a pushing the last bit of the sword in, so to speak, right? And that hope of him returning one day to our family, returning one day to our church, was lost. And for many, many years, uh, I struggled with that. Because my father was living in sin he had fallen into temptation, abandoned his family, abandoned his church. And I had no idea. I was 11 years old. I had no idea what was the condition of his heart at that time of his, of his passing. There was no way for me to know what conversations he had with God, what conversations he had with Jesus. I had no understanding, no clue. And so for many, many years, I battled with 
was my father saved? I know he was a pastor. I know he did all these amazing things, and he fell into sin like so many people do and fell into temptation. We're all human, and he made a mistake, and, and I struggle with that and struggle with that. And ultimately, I didn't find peace until I was about 19 years old. When I was finally able to say, you know what, it's, it's not for me to know. And, and the beauty of, of God is that there is redemption and there is mercy and there is grace. And, I, and I, have, I have a hope in my heart that somehow he reconciled with God and somehow he reconciled his heart with Jesus. And, but that's between him and God, right? And my father's salvation is not on, on, on me. It's not me to save him. It's not me to save anyone, right? That's between him and Jesus. And so I know for me this is a real struggle to know, Lord, who, who is going to be saved? Are they few, right? This is a real thing, especially for people who are following Jesus at this time. And they may have been the outcast in their family, right? And they're wanting to know. You're talking about the end of times. Jesus is starting to lay out the end of times. And like, man, I know I know you, Jesus, and I'm following you. But whose else is, I mean, does this mean my family is lost? Who is going to be saved, right? So this is a real question that his followers had. And a real struggle that I think many of us still deal with every day. And this question, that the way it was posed, it's not really so much focused on who will be saved, although we're going to go a little bit into that, but it, uh, it's more about asking how many will be saved or how, how really, what does that look like? And in Jesus' fashion, in true Jesus' fashion, of course, he does not answer this question <laughs> straight on. He's got to give you a little something more which is, that's Jesus. It's awesome. And so he rather explains why or why not people will either be received or rejected by him on the last day of judgment. And so we go into verse 24 of Luke chapter 13, and it says, strive, this is Jesus speaking, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So the main point of this verse centers on the need for us to make sure that we are part of the few. Jesus is telling there's only a few that are going to make it through the narrow gate. It's an encouragement to us. He is telling us strive. He's encouraging his people, you have to strive to enter through that narrow gate. Because there's going to be a lot of people who try but will fail. We have to accept that through repentance and faith and experiencing God's mercy and grace is how we enter through that narrow gate. And we see another referral to this explanation of a narrow gate in Matthew 7.13. And in Matthew 7.13 it says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And Jesus is very honest with us here. He doesn't pull any punches. He is laying out the truth. He's not going to soften it for us. This is the truth of our existence, right? The truth of our existence is that it is very easy for us 
to put our lives on a path that leads to destruction. It was very easy for my father to choose a path that led to destruction. And that he's not the first person, the first pastor to ever make that mistake, right? We see this time and time and again in the, in the, the history of our churches and modern day churches. It is easy. It is easy for us to fall into a path that leads to destruction. And unfortunately, many, many people take that path. And, you know, just to be honest with you, the, the path of life, right, the path of, of righteousness can be hard. And the gate is most definitely narrow, right? That is a reality that we have lived in. The gate is narrow. The path is narrow. The thing I want to share with you this morning is that Jesus has made a way where there was no way. And he gave us a way to the Father and a way to eternal life. And the path, the path to, to life, the path to righteousness becomes much easier when we depend on what Jesus has done and not on what we can do. Amen? The path to life becomes easier and wider when we depend on what Jesus has done and not what we can do. Absolutely, the path is very hard when we are trying to do according to our own talents and to our own strengths. If we say, oh, there's the narrow gate, I am going to get there. I am going to make it to that narrow gate. I have the talent. I have the strength. I know the Bible. I know this. I, know, I mean, I'm going to do it, man. I know how to pray. This is, I can do this. And if you, that is your approach, if that has been your approach, you will fail. When you try to do this of your own accord and of your own strength to make your salvation, to reach the path of life, you will fail. It's only when we ask Jesus for his burden that, that, that our burden becomes light. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light in Matthew 11.30. We have to turn to Jesus for that narrow path because it is a hard path. It is a very, very strict path, a very narrow gate. But when, when Jesus is doing the work for you, when he is carrying the burden for you, it becomes easy. It becomes joy. It becomes strength. So what is the path that Jesus has set before us? What is the burden he has asked us to carry and we see this in Mark chapter 12, verse 29. Mark 12, 29. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And we're talking about the great commandment. That is the path of life. Jesus tells us if you want life, you want eternal life, you want to be on the path of righteousness, love God and love others. There's no greater commandment. There's no greater purpose in your life than to love God and love others. But I need to tell you that you cannot love God and you cannot love others without Jesus. You cannot truly 
truly love God and love others without Jesus. If you try to love God without Jesus, you will fail. It is very easy for us to fall out of love with God without Jesus. Because we can look at the world and we see tragedy and we see sickness and we see these horrible things that happen in our world. And if there's no Jesus and it's just this supreme God in heaven and all these bad things are happening, it's so easy for us to fall out of love with God and curse him and blame him. And it's Jesus that has connected us with the Father who has now empowered us to have that supernatural love for God, our Father, so that when bad things happen and bad things are going to happen, my Father leaving us and abandoning us and dying was a horrible thing. Bad things are going to happen. It would have been very easy for me to curse God and be done with God and never step into my, uh, my foot into a church again. But because of the hope of Jesus, Jesus is the one that allows us and enables us to love God, even in the midst of really, really bad things. And it's Jesus that allows us and enables us to love each other. If we try to love each other with our own human love, our human love is broken. Our human love is limited. The amount of love even I have for my son, for my daughter, for Ryan, is sometimes not as deep as I want it to be because it's a human love. And it's Jesus that gives us a capacity to love each other. Without Jesus, we, our love for each other can only go so far. Our love for each other, we're going to offend each other. We're going to disappoint each other. We're going to fail each other. And it's only by by Jesus between you and I, by Jesus and my family, that we can love each other. So the commandment that he has given us, the path, that narrow gate, is for us to love God and love others. That's the path. And the only way that we are successful on that path, the only way we can ever enter in through the narrow gate is by Jesus. He is the one that enables us to love God and love each other. Let's look at verse 25 in Luke chapter 13. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. So this is another analogy that's involving a door. So we have the narrow door, and now this is another door that we're knocking basically on the gates of heaven, asking Jesus to let us in. And this is less on the individual seeking to enter and more on the Lord's control over who enters. And at that time, when it is possible that our ability to enter will come to an end, and earlier uh, in chapter 13, a couple weeks ago when I preached, we talked about the, the fig tree and already raised that issue of that limited time, that limited time that we have here on earth to make ourselves right in God's eyes through Jesus. 
And the time for enrollment is limited. The period of grace will eventually end, and the time of judgment will begin. The time of grace is going to end, and a time of judgment will begin. And you're going to see Jesus preaching this and preaching this more and more as we get closer to the cross. He's telling them, you have to understand, I am with you for a little while. And this time of grace is just for a moment. And there is a day that I am going to have to return, and that judgment day is going to come. It is a reality. We see a similar reference in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's the will of the Father? Love God and love others, right? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So wait a second. They're saying, Lord, I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I did mighty works in your name. And you're telling me I don't get to go to heaven? That's messed up. I did all these mighty works in your name. You say that you never knew me? How is that possible? Can I tell you that you can prophesy in the name of Jesus? You can cast out demons in the name of Jesus? You can heal the sick in the name of Jesus and still not love the name of Jesus. There are many who do these things in our world today who are doing it for profit and self-glory, saying, see what I can do in the name of Jesus. See what I can do in the name of Jesus. And they have no real relationship of love with Jesus. They can do things because that's the power of the name of Jesus. And Jesus is going to do things for his name's sake. But it's absolutely 100% possible for you to go and cast out a demon in the name of Jesus and not really know Jesus and not know the heart of Jesus and not be in love with Jesus. We get in love with the idea of miracles. We get in love with the idea of being able to prophesy and speak eloquently about Jesus without truly knowing his heart and truly loving Jesus. So absolutely, Jesus is saying, you can do all these things, but if you don't love God and you don't love others, I do not know you. So it's very possible for these people and for people today to do amazing things in the name of Jesus and miss out on actually knowing his heart and miss out on actually being in love with Jesus. We see another example of this in 1 Corinthians 13, a very famous scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have 
And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You can do amazing things proclaiming it's for God. But if you have not love, it counts for nothing. You could offer yourself of a sacrifice, but not know love, and it was for nothing. If you claim to be a Christian, but do not live a life of loving God and loving others, through Jesus, you don't know him. In Matthew 25, 41, I'm going to use a lot of scripture today, y'all, because I would rather have the Bible teach you than me. Matthew 25, 41, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the internal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not receive me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, you did not visit me. And they will also answer, Lord, saying, When did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Again, that path to life, that path that Jesus has set before us, the narrow gate, is how are we going to to love those around us that Jesus has put in our lives. And it is very hard to love those around us. It is very hard for us to make time for the sick and the poor. It's very hard for us sometimes to make time for the, the lost who are in prison. And Jesus says, if you do not minister to these, if you do not love these, I do not know you. You reject me. And so we must connect with the love of Jesus that he has for all peoples, for the poor, for the lost, for the sick, for the needy. That is the heart of our Father. Let's go back to to Luke chapter 13. And we're in verse 26 now. Then you will begin to say, and we're still in the same kind of thread, of we ate and drank in your presence And you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. I can tell you right now, church, there might be a day, and I I would never want this for anyone, but there might come that day of judgment when you are there at the gates and you see people from this room on the other side and you say, I know those people. I went to church with those people. Why am I not there with them on that side? And Jesus is going to tell you, depart from me. Because the mere fact of just being physically in Jesus' presence or being acquainted with him is not sufficient for entrance into God's kingdom. Any more than membership of a church is a guarantee for you to go to heaven. These people are saying, 
Jesus, we are walking with you. We're here hearing you teach. You're in our streets. We're hanging out with you every day. What do you mean I'm not going to be with you in the kingdom of heaven? Just because you hang out with Jesus, just because you come to church, does not qualify you to enter into the kingdom. And that's truth. Jesus is being real with us this morning through this scripture. For Luke's readers, this has served as a warning that partaking of the baptism and the Lord's Supper did not guarantee entrance into God's kingdom. Church, you can come every Sunday morning for the entirety of your life. I've been in church since I was two months old. You can come to church every Sunday your entire life, partake in communion, be baptized. Maybe you missed seven Sundays your entire life. You were there every Sunday, and you could still miss out on the kingdom of God because just showing up to church is not what gets you into heaven. Showing up and going through the motions and singing songs and sitting there is not what gets us into heaven. It's not what connects us to eternal life. To know him and make him known, that is the ultimate goal. There is a difference between knowledge about God and knowledge of him. There's many of us who have grown up in church and we know all about God. We know all about him. We know all the stories. We know all the scriptures. We know all the famous psalms. We know them. That does not qualify that we know him. In John 14, John 14, 7, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You have to know Jesus to know the Father. It's the only way that we can ever know God. It's the only way that we can ever know his heart and understand who he is. It's through Jesus. If we know Jesus, we know the Father. A little bit more about knowledge. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 8. I told you we're going to read a lot of scripture today. 1 Corinthians 8. Now this is concerning food offered to idols, but I still think it's relative to what we're talking about, this knowledge of God. We know that all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs us up, but love builds us up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So knowledge of knowing about God, you think about the Pharisees, right? They knew a lot 
about God. They had committed their lives to the studying of God. They knew everything about God. And then when Jesus showed up and he was face to face with them, they could not see God. They had an opportunity to know God in the flesh. They had an opportunity to know him face to face. But they were too consumed and too puffed up with their knowledge of God, about God, and not see him. And we can fall into this same trap. And what does it tell us? How do we actually know God? To know God is to love God. In verse 3, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Again, we come back to love. I'm going to come back to love all day. To love God and to love others is the only way that we can enter into the kingdom. And we see this. It's not just me saying this. We see this throughout Scripture. In 1 John 5, another great famous Scripture, 1 John 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father, who loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God, that's us, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So again, we see this theme here that to know God is to love God and to love others through his Son, Jesus. That narrow gate becomes wider when love is in our hearts. That narrow gate, that narrow path becomes easier to walk when we love Jesus, when we receive his love, and he enables us to love God and love others. It is by Jesus and through Jesus that we can know God and be known by him. We've seen now Jesus talk about I did not know you. He said it several times now. You did this and you did this and you did this, but I do not know you. If you want Jesus to know who you are, if you want to be known by God, he will know you by your love. He will know you by your love. Let's get back into Luke. In Luke 13, 29, and people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. In this verse, we see the plan of God to bring all people to him. Not just the Jews, not just his chosen people, but that all are welcome to the banqueting table that he has set for us in heaven. The plan of God is to redeem all all those who have received his son. From every corner of the earth, there is no people group that God has not poured out his grace and his mercy. And how do we receive that grace and mercy? It's through Jesus. And Jesus, at his time, 
We see him, in the, especially in these last chapters, he is trying to get to every people group that he can to let them know the love of his father. And he's still speaking with this group of, of, of Jews, and most of them were Jews that were following him. And, and so this next statement in verse 30, Behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Jesus used this proverb to signify that the admission into heaven is going to include the people who have been outcast by Israel. We look at who did Jesus hang out with every day? Tax collectors, fishermen, demon-possessed people, harlots, and prostitutes. These were the people who were considered last in society. And Jesus is trying to change the way that people perceive and change the way that we look at things. Because in God's world, the humble and meek shall inherit the earth, not the rich and powerful. And this was a completely different way of thinking for Jews at this time. That's why they were so baffled by Jesus. They couldn't understand Jesus, this man who claimed to be the Son of God, who were doing all these amazing things, yet he hung out with sinners and broken people and lepers. How can this be the Son of God if this is who he's, shouldn't he be in the palace? Shouldn't he always be with the elite, the most prestigious people? And Jesus is saying, the last will be first, and the first will be last here on, in heaven and, and in earth. Let's go to 31. And at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, this is not a news flash to Jesus. First of all, we see Pharisees coming to tell this news to Jesus. And it's interesting that there were actually some Pharisees that were sympathetic to Jesus and to the Christian movement. He didn't rebuke these Pharisees. He, usually when Pharisees come around, he calls them a bunch of snakes and sends them on their way. This group of Pharisees that came to him to warn him about Herod were in fact friendly Pharisees. We don't see a whole lot of them in the Bible, but there are indeed friendly Pharisees. Pharisees, uh, a very famous one in John chapter 3, uh, in verse 1, we see Nicodemus, right? And Nicodemus was a ruler of Pharisees. He was actually a very high level. And, and Jesus, in verse 2, says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher and come from God, for one cannot do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus and his little inner circle recognized that Jesus was from God. So there were a few, very, very, very few Pharisees at this time that did recognize Jesus as the Son of God. They were a very small group. So here in Luke 13, we see this you know, nice guy, Pharisee, come over to give Jesus a warning about Herod. And the thing about Herod, King Herod, when Jesus was born, he slaughtered thousands of little boys 
in an attempt to kill Jesus. So there's bad blood already there. It's been brewing for 33 years. Here's Herod, who killed thousands of babies, thousands of babies to try to kill Jesus. This is also the same Herod who just a few weeks earlier from this moment had Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, beheaded. So we know this in, 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 according to Matthew's gospel uh, and his account of, of, of the time sequence that Herod murdered John the Baptist before the feeding of the 5,000. So we're already past the feeding of the 5,000. So here's Jesus and Herod. Herod has murdered thousands of kids to try to kill him. He has murdered his cousin, John the Baptist, in pretty gruesome style, had his head put on a plate at a party. This is a very evil man who is now trying again to kill Jesus. Let's look at Jesus' response to this warning of Herod. So in verse 32, he said to them, Go and tell that fox, boom, mic drop, Behold, I cast out demons and perform curses today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Jesus had no fear of Herod. He'd already tried to murder him once when he was a baby. He'd already murdered his cousin, John, who he loved dearly. And Jesus had no fear. He could not interfere with his life 33 years earlier, and he was not going to interfere at this time in Jesus' life either. Jesus was undeterred to push forward to accomplish what his father had sent him to do. The time for Jesus to be crucified was not yet. So this warning that, that Herod is about to come and grab you, behold, he's trying to kill you, Jesus is not phased. No one was going to make him miss his divine appointment at Calvary, and there would not be an early execution. Jesus would be crucified on the appointed day, at the appointed place, at the appointed time, and more importantly, how does he end the statement? That on the third day, he would finish his business. And we see several examples throughout the gospel of Jesus alluding and hinting to the third day resurrection. And any chance he gets, he's trying to nudge the disciples because they're a little bit dense. This is going to happen. You're going to lose me. But on the third day, something amazing is going to happen. That is when truly my work has been finished. And I accomplished my ultimate goal. And nothing is going to keep him from his ultimate destination, the cross. And nothing is going to keep him from his ultimate victory, the resurrection. Amen? Not this murderous Herod. No one would keep Jesus from the cross. Let's move on to verse 33. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So Jesus 
knows that he is supposed to die both in and at the hands of Jerusalem. And for Luke, Jesus' goal was not merely his arrival in Jerusalem, but the completion of his redemptive work. In Jerusalem is where Jesus is going to complete his redemptive work. And as Jesus draws closer and closer to Jerusalem, the urgency to accomplish as much as he can with those that are following him is really pressing on him. The urgency to to reach the lost, the urgency to, to heal the sick and raise the dead is pressing on Jesus because he knows his time is running out. And we see the burden of the reality of this on Jesus in verse 34. His heart is breaking for the city of Jerusalem and for his people, the Jews. In verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus is lamenting that he would often have gathered the people of Jerusalem, but they have continually refused him. Instead, they continue to kill the prophets, and as a result, are forsaken and experiencing divine wrath. However, The stone that the builders rejected is going to become the chief cornerstone. Amen? In 35, the last verse of chapter 13, Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is a warning to us, church, to not wait until the last day to cry out to him. To not wait until the last day to say, Lord, I see you now. Lord, I know you now. This is a warning to us to not go through the motions of church, to not go through just coming here and hearing about God but not knowing God and not truly depending on Jesus for that love of God and depending on Jesus for us to love each other. Let us live a life devoted to loving God and loving others through his son, Jesus. That is our ultimate goal. That is the way through the narrow path is for us to know God and be known by him. And the only way that we can know God and be known by him is through his son, Jesus. I have to trust in God for my father. I have to trust in God for those that I know around me who who don't know him. And it weighs on my heart it weighs heavily on my heart that God, I, it's, I feel responsible 
to love those around me, to, to, to let them know the love of God. And I hope that all of us carry that burden. But that burden is not meant to drag us down. That burden of the, those that are lost around us is not meant to make us feel heavy and depressed. Rather, it's a burden of joy and a burden of hope because Jesus has made a way. For the most lost person that you know, for you yourself at your darkest hour, for you yourself at your darkest moment, for your friend, for your coworker, for the for the worst and lowest of mankind, Jesus has made a way. And it's through his love that we can know his father. I want to invite my team back up. And I want us to close today. Um, would you stand with me? And we're going to read from John 14. And I think this is a, a very appropriate prayer for us this morning. Although that the, the, the path is narrow, and Jesus says it's very, very hard. He's very real with us. It can also be very easy if we depend on him. If we look to Jesus. In John 14, this is our prayer this morning. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. And believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again that's the promise that we cling to this morning I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also and you know the way to where I am going and like us and like Thomas we say Lord we do not know where you are going how can we know the way we get so lost we get so lost, we don't know the way, this narrow path. And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, church, you do know him. And you have seen him. Jesus does not make himself hidden from us. He does not hide his face. He does not keep his presence from us. And I want to just encourage you today as we take communion and we remember the price that Jesus paid for us. And as we worship this morning, let's worship him and know him and receive his love and receive that capacity to love God in this moment through Jesus and love each other in this moment through Jesus. Amen.